Welcome church, I trust you're staying safe and caring for one another, looking after each other as a spiritual family should and uh, if you are in isolation and you uh, want to connect please reach out to us, we've got uh, a Zoom Bible study running on Wednesday, you're more than welcome to join in on that, so just send me a message, personal message and, and I'll send you a link. So we've been um, in review, we've been, this is number six in our series on apologetics and I encourage you just to uh, have a look at the other ones previous just so you can keep up to speed and it will save me doing a review each week as well so you can do your own review. Today I want to look at this question of uh, who wrote the New Testament or who compiled the New Testament not who wrote it, we looked at that last week who compiled the New Testament letters and how did they decide which ones to include because there was lots of letters being circulated about. So who compiled the New Testament? One of the main characters in the Da Vinci Code, Lee Teebling, states that at one point in the movie he says that Constantine commissioned and financed the New Bible, which omits those Gospels that spoke of Christ's traits and embellished the Gospels that made him godlike. Well, that's... Um, that council was supposed to be the Nicene Council that he's referring to in 325. It, um, what this movie doesn't um, wasn't doesn't declare is that it's fictional. That's that's not true, and it's marketed as truth because there's never been any evidence that uh, what they did at the council, the Nicene Council, was to compile this list of books. There's no evidence for that, and we've got good records of what they actually did discuss, things like the deity of Christ. And so that's just not true. What was true is that Da Vinci Code discussed the, the nature of Christ and his divinity, and they had 318 bishops, and they end up compiling what we know as the Nicene Creed, which basically spells out that Jesus is God, and that he came to earth in flesh and it goes on and, ex and explains and we'll probably look at that at some detail later on. But we need to realise that by 325 the text that these guys were all using to debate these things were already written and they'd already been compiled. Now what this does highlight though is that there were false letters being circulated about and false teaching because they were trying to debate what is true? Is Jesus God? There were some letters that said no, that he wasn't. Uh, take, for example, Gnosticism. The sayings, um, the Gnosticism basically took sayings of Jesus and they twisted them to suit their theology or their point of view. Um, and Gnosticism is a mix of myths, 
of magic, of secret knowledge and philosophies. The, the Gnostics claim to be the elect, they have a special knowledge, and that their souls are fragments of the divine, that uh, they need liberating from matter, and that the rest of humanity is really, uh, they say, are clods, earthly clods, for whom no hope may be entertained. And that the whole human condition, our problem as humans, is caused by God because God's incompetent. That's what they believe. What this meant for the Christian was that Jesus could not have been human. He would have had to pollute himself by taking on flesh. The, Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Thomas is an example of this kind of teaching. It says, um, this is a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her, and I will make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's clearly not uh, what Jesus is teaching. And so John, in the, in the Gospel of John, he, he writes this letter, he writes his letter really as uh, an argument against uh, this sort of teaching. And his argument's pretty clear, isn't it? He? he opens up with verse 1 saying, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Paul wrote his letters in response to this sort of false teaching as well. Remember his warning in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. He said, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. And remember, the, the, the book of Galatians is one of the first books that we've actually, we think, is, is written or collected. And so Paul is actually responding to these false letters and claims. One of the false claims that Paul really addresses in 1 Corinthians is this teaching, false teaching of Montanaism. And that's a reaction to Gnosticism. They claim that the Holy Spirit actually is coming down to earth and uh, speaking through them. And so they, the whole gift, the charismatic gifts of the speaking in tongues is really that they were interpreting the Holy Spirit speaking to them and they recorded their own gospels, their own truths and, and said that people need to believe that what they were saying is true. And so they claimed that the new Jerusalem would come down from heaven to earth and set up its reign in Phyrigra. I think that's how you pronounce it. And so Paul uh, wrote in 1 Corinthians a response to the teaching about tongues and things like that. Um, he wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by cunning ways of a serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. And so Paul is clearly warning the church that Satan is about, um, and he's trying to twist the truth. He's, 
tactics, his whole agenda is really to uh, create a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit Christ, an antichrist, if you like, um, to take to rob God of of the glory that he deserves. And so you can see why these letters are written and being circulated. It's really a tactic of Satan to twist the truth and cause Christians to go off a different path. So there's lots of these things, letters being circulated around. In uh, Luke in chapter 1, he confirms that this is true, and he writes his whole book because he wants to actually set out what is true. He, he writes, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. And they used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honourable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. So these Gospels, um, what he's writing is actually something responding to, to the teaching that they've already, they already know, which is true. And so he's, he's saying, you know what the truth is, and I want you to, I'm going to take an account of this, and so that you can actually be sure that this is, this is the truth. And these false gospels, they obviously weren't written by the apostles. And so who were they written by? Well, we don't know, because they used the names of the apostles uh, so that these letters will be read. And... Uh, there were books written like the the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Peter and the Acts of um, different stories. Now one story uh, in the Act of Paul, he writes, uh, one, one of the stories in this book concerns the Apostle Paul and his encounter with a lion. And the story says that Paul preached to the lion in the wilderness around Ephesus. And the lion was converted and then was baptised. And later, when Paul was taken to the amphitheatre in Ephesus to be thrown into the lions, we're told that the lion who was sent out to kill him was actually the same one Paul baptised, and consequently, Paul was able to miraculously escape death. And that's one example of the found in Acts of Paul. There's also the, the Acts of Peter, the Acts of John, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel to the Egyptians, and so on. So why were these books written? Many of these false Gospels were trying to fill in the blanks. And Jesus told his disciples not to tell people certain things that he told his disciples. And so this is, it creates some sort of speculation about what was actually Jesus saying. Was it a secret knowledge that he is passing on? Uh, what happened uh, to Jesus you know, in, in his birth, from his birth to the ministry. Um, what happened after Jesus died and rose again? What happened within those three days? What happened after Jesus was resurrected? He, resurrected, he was on earth for around 40 days and appearing to different people. Who, who did he go and see? Where did he go? Uh, so all this is speculation and and so these, these books are basically trying to fill in those blanks. So who compiled these letters? The short answer seems to be that these were compiled by the early church. The letters were being circulated around the churches, and obviously these letters were copies of copies. You know, if you got the original, you would keep it, and you would write a copy and send it to someone else. 
but they began to form this natural collection of letters that were and gospels that were compiled and joined together and so all the letters to Paul and um, the churches were compiled together eventually all the gospels were compiled together and these were circulated amongst the churches in the early church. So point two, how did they decide which books to include and which ones to reject? You can imagine if the church received a letter, the elders would receive it. The natural questions they would ask would be, who wrote this? Uh, when was it written? Does it line up with what we already know about the truth and what we've heard and seen? And so this is a basic criteria that, uh, according to Lee Strobel's, in his book, The Case for Christ, he says there are three things. He says the first is that the book must have been written by the apostles, or at least under the authority of an apostle. So the book of Mark, for example, is written under the authority with Peter, and books like uh, Luke, Luke and, and the Acts are written uh, in conjunction with Paul because we know that uh, Luke was a follower or a scribe of Paul. So that means that anything that was written after the first century was pretty much rejected, if they could tell, if they could determine that's what happened. Obviously, fakes were trying to uh, counterfeit the fact that they were written in the first century, so it was a, a difficult job as time went on to decide which ones were actually uh, true. And so the second criteria was... Is it congruent with the basic Christian traditions that they already know? You've got to remember that the apostles and all those, the early church, they were eyewitnesses of these things, and so they would know the truth. They'd smell a rat if they, when they saw it. So does it confirm what the early church considered as normative? As you heard an example in the Gospel of Thomas, it was, if it didn't sound like Jesus' teaching, then it was chucked out. I mean, that was... That clearly doesn't sound like Jesus, the way that he was uh, treated women and treated Mary and, and Mary Magdalene. He had great respect for women and he didn't. He would never have said anything like that. And so the Gospel of Thomas was rejected clearly. And thirdly, the Gospels and the letters were being circulated and accepted among the churches. It wasn't just one church who decided or one person who decided or one group of people who sat down and said, okay, this is what we think. They didn't have an agenda, if you like. These churches all accepted this and it was being passed around the churches. And so this, this uh, group of letters become known as the canon of scripture. And if you're familiar with church politics, you can imagine the debates and the kind of debates that were happening. The debates were healthy because what it actually did was force them to write down what was true. And it, it created this group of scriptures that was we were able to have today. Don't misunderstand me. It didn't uh, negate doctrinal discussions and debates. They still go on today. And we might look at some of those later on really concerning the nature of Christ and, and how they how they decided that this was the truth. So I'm confident that today what you have in your hands, the Bible, is the Word of God. It's recorded by the apostles who actually were eyewitnesses in the first century and saw what Jesus did. And it was accepted by all the churches. The Word is living and it's active and it teaches us what truth is. It collectively teaches us 
that Jesus is God and that he came to earth, that he died as a man for the sin of the world. And while we can't prove with evidence that Jesus died for the sin of mankind, that's a good thing too, because that actually leaves the door open for faith. And I think that's the way God designed it. God wants us to step into this realm of spirituality uh, with faith, not just with knowledge. If he wanted us to come to know him through knowledge, and that's a whole different uh, school of fish. It, it requires universities and education and all that. But a simple child can come to know Jesus through faith. And that's the way God's designed it. And so that's good news for us today, isn't it? So I encourage you to have a read of the Word of God, this, this book called the Bible. But to take that a step further and say, Father, I, I believe this. I, I accept it as truth in my heart. Let me pray for you today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it's, it's over the history, over thousands of years, it's been proven to be true, and we can rely on it. We thank you for the good news that it brings, that it's not just facts and stories about Jesus. It actually has a message that we can be saved, that we can, through faith, step into a spiritual kingdom. And Father, we know that in this world today, where we live, it's difficult, it's hard, and we look forward with hope uh, toward this spiritual kingdom. And until that day, we, we ask for your help to strengthen us, to lead us and guide us, to protect us. We pray for people, Christians in um, Afghanistan, who are undergoing suffering at this time, uh, people in uh, Papua, uh, people around the world, people in our own community, Lord, who are suffering uh, anxiety and stress and uh, physical sickness, Lord. We ask that you will visit them and that you will bring healing to their lives, that you will bring protection to those who need it. We know that this word of yours teaches us that you are an active God who loves us and cares for us and is wanting to engage in relationship with us. And so, Father, I ask that, uh, Lord, you will hear the prayers of those who are desperately calling you and that you will come and visit them through your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, church.
shadow 